Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, June 15th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Southern Baptist Convention wrestles with deep internal division in Nashville. Then a healthcare company pays out eight figures to settle a lawsuit filed by the state of Mississippi. And our conversation with Jackson Mayor Shokwai Antar Lamumba continues. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Bitter disagreements over race in America and a venomous leaked letter set an inauspicious tone for the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting, which begins this morning in Nashville. There, the SBC, which is majority white but increasingly racially diverse, is set to reckon with infighting over critical race theory, a sociological concept that understands racism as systemic and institutionalized. It must also deal with allegations that sexual abuse within some Southern Baptist congregations was mishandled and survivors mistreated. Atop that, the SBC must elect a new president. Four candidates are in the running for the job, perhaps the most notable of whom is Georgia pastor Mike Stone. Stone has taken a hardline stance against critical race theory. He also opposes a national-level investigation into abuse claims, citing the SBC's decentralized structure as a prohibitive barrier. A recently leaked letter written by the SBC's former chief ethicist, accuses Stone and others of deliberately thwarting initial accountability efforts. Adam Wyatt is pastor of First Baptist Church in Leakesville. He's not a supporter of Mike Stone's bid for the presidency. Instead, he's given his endorsement to Ed Litton, an Alabama pastor who differs from Stone on several key issues. Speaking from Nashville, Wyatt tells MPB's Rob Lane he favors a centralized third-party investigation into abuse mismanagement claims. If there are people out there saying, hey, look, we haven't handled this well, I think we need to handle it better. And if that's what it's going to take for us to handle that better, then we need to do that. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues, I think, that are in the, in the middle, and we just need to agree, disagree agreeably. But I don't, I don't think this is one. We, we, we have to defend women and children. I just, I don't even see how that is, that is even something up for debate. And most people do. And so if that... Now, depending on how those motions are, are, are kind of written or read and how they, they are worded, you know, I, I, would, 
I would be behind that. If women are saying, hey, listen, I came to to this group or to this man, this person, and, and I got nothing, I got no help. Well, you know, that's something that's something we need to deal with. And so, yes, I firmly, uh, I firmly am behind that. I, I saw you quoted in the Wall Street Journal um, expressing yeah, that's where this came from. Yeah. some uncertainty about uh, whether or not you could see a future for yourself and your family as part of the church, depending on basically how this goes. Well, let me, let me, I can answer that, but I want to clarify, really. It was a good quote, but it wasn't necessarily in pure context of what I said. Okay. Um, you know, I choose to be, I, I would never leave the church because I love Jesus. Um, and Jesus has called us to the church. And to be honest, the Southern Baptist Convention, for all of our flaws, we're still seeing people get saved. And even in the midst of COVID, you know, our missionaries overseas saw more baptisms and, and more gospel fruit in the midst of a pandemic. And that's just so encouraging. And we're still planting churches and we're still, we're still doing good work. So I'll never leave the church, but I, I choose to be Southern Baptist. I've always been Southern Baptist. My dad's a Southern Baptist pastor even now. Um, However, um, moving forward, I don't, I don't know if I have to be a Southern Baptist in order to, to love Jesus and faithfully serve the global church. Um, so I'd never leave the church, but I, I do see some troubling stuff. And, and if, if we're going to fight so much and if we're going to have, you know, whether it is shady backroom politics or it is, I don't know because I'm not in the room, but if we're going to have some of these things that are, that are perceived some of that way, you know, there may be a day, a day where I've got to look at my three daughters and my wife and say, you know, do, do we do we still need to fight this or do we just need to go, you know, go all in at our local church and not worry about convention politics? And so that's really more what I meant. That being said, I love being a Southern Baptist. We have we have warts and, and issues and all kinds of things we need to deal with. Um, and ultimately, I think we're going to deal with a lot of them at this convention. I trust our messengers because I think most of our messengers love Jesus and, and want to do what's honoring to the Lord. You know, and so I, I hope uh, over the next 10 years, you know, we're going to make some strides uh, in, a, in a good way. But as of right now, today, you, know, you just don't know where some of those things are going to go. So I do think this, in my lifetime, I'm only 39, but I think this is by far the biggest convention I've ever been a part of because of what it could represent, if that makes sense. Yeah, and just as a really quick point of clarification, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you. For you right now, your biggest preoccupation in terms of what comes out of this convention is the seriousness and the game plan for how to handle addressing and preventing instances of sexual abuse. Is that fair? <laughs> I don't see how there can be any middle ground on sexual abuse. I don't, I don't, not in scripture, not theologically, not biblically, not church history. I mean, there's, there's nothing that we can say, well, this is totally okay. This is, this is, this is we're doing just enough. And I just don't think so. That's not to say other issues are, are important. That's why, you know, presidents and are important because, because of their influence, not because of their authority, but because of their influence, especially when they're, you know, trying to, to put people on committees and, and then committees and you've got, you know, your trustees of your institution, those kind of things. Um, but right now, you know, I've got, I got three little girls and, and, and my hope would be that if, God forbid, something like that happened to one of mine, that if, that if I took her, uh, to denominational leaders that they would listen and they would, they would act. Um, 
and and my hope would be that if that happened in the church I served, that that I would that I would act. Um, you know, that I wouldn't push that up. Um, and I'm and I'm not saying everyone has done that because they haven't, but but there has been some that have um, in local churches, and guys like that need to not be in our denomination. Um, they just don't. Uh, and yes, I, I firmly agree with that. But there are a lot of issues going on too. Significant among those issues is, again, the question of race and critical race theory. Terry Mattingly writes about religion for the Howard Scripps News Service and it's GetReligion.org. At GetReligion.org, he's also a senior Overby Fellow at the University of Mississippi. Mattingly says both the alleged mishandling of sexual abuse and the intensifying debate over race within the SBC could spiral into serious crisis. Let's look at it in Baptist terms. In terms of the structures of Baptist life, I think the sexual abuse issue is the more explosive inside the denomination because it has legal, financial, and structural implications. In other words, at some point, someone could sue the executive committee. I mean, it it actually involves criticism investigations of and maybe even attacks on the institutions of the Southern Baptist Conventions themselves. But in the current framework of American life, if something were to happen at this convention that caused the the African-American body of Southern Baptists, where some of them, most of them, let alone all of them, to walk out, that would be a tremendously powerful headline and news story in the current context of America that I think would be the biggest possible news story to come out of this. I don't think the press has done a good job of explaining to uh, the public how important the growing churches, the growing African-American churches are to the Southern Baptist Convention and to its future. Let me just give you one example. Did you watch online the funeral for George Floyd do you do you know what church it occurred in that funeral was held at a church called the fountain of praise in Houston it is a big important mega church the George Floyd funeral was held in a southern baptist church so in in the current context i think that's the most explosive of the issues Without holding you to anything and without trying to turn you into some kind of oracle, how do you see this going down? No idea. Terry Mattingly, thank you very much for your time today. The Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting begins this morning and is scheduled to conclude Wednesday afternoon. Coming up, Mississippi settles a lawsuit against a health care company. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Mississippi has reached an eight-figure settlement with Centene, a healthcare company involved in processing the state's Medicaid prescriptions. Speaking with our Kobe Vance, state auditor Shad White explains the nature of the suit. A couple of years ago, back in 2019, my office initiated an investigation of uh, what are called pharmacy benefit managers. And, and for folks who have never heard of PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, they are these large companies who are sort of middlemen in between your retail pharmacy where you go to fill a prescription and health plans. So in this case, we were investigating whether uh, a couple of large PBMs were overbilling Mississippi's Medicaid program. And unfortunately, what we found was that uh, Centene, which owns PBMs and, and owns managed care companies, uh, Centene had been responsible for some overbilling uh, regarding Mississippi Medicaid drug payments. And so once we realized that, we, uh, we started working closely with the Attorney General's office and the news today is that attorneys representing the state of Mississippi, my office, and the Attorney General's office have entered into a settlement with Centene. It's a, it's a very large company. It's a Fortune 50 company for uh, $55.5 million. It's one of the largest uh, agreements or settlements, that civil settlements, that resulted from an investigation by the state auditor's office that we have in our records. In fact, we can't find any uh, civil settlements that are larger than this that resulted from an investigation from the auditor's office. So we're, uh, we're pleased to report that today because, one, it means that, that the taxpayers are going to be getting some money back uh, for, uh, for overbilling that occurred related to prescription drugs, but, two, uh, because Centene has now pledged to uh, basically implement more transparency measures and to change the nature of their PBM. Actually, it's not going to be a PBM anymore, and, uh, and do that in order to make sure that this sort of overbilling doesn't ever happen again. So what happens with this money now? So the money, uh, as with any settlement, it will come back to the state. The attorney general's office is, is the entity that, that you know, works with the attorneys to, to structure and agree to the settlement. So it comes back, and, and ultimately that money comes back to, uh, to Mississippi taxpayers. And that's where, that's where it should be. Uh, you, you know, when you think about this, these sorts of overcharges, uh, especially in Ohio, uh, were shown to trigger increases in prescription drug prices, so it hurts consumers in that way, but also the taxpayers are paying for Medicaid, both in Ohio and in Mississippi. So uh, in this case, we're grateful that we're getting the money back, but we're also, of course, grateful that, that this is not going to happen again with this particular company. Now, for uh, clarity, is this is money that was spent um, – that was paid by the state, not by the consumer directly, Correct. Correct. That's exactly right. So this is this is involving payments from the state of Mississippi, to be more specific, Mississippi's Medicaid program, uh, to a managed care company. And, and then really the overbilling happened when a PBM called Involve, which is owned by Centene, overcharged a managed care company also owned by Centene, uh, Magnolia Health. So that, that's where the overpayments happened. Those overpayments were in violation of the contract between uh, the state, uh, Medicaid, and uh, and the companies who are managing all these payments. And so that's what we discovered, and that's what led us to today. In a press release from uh, Centene, they, they pointed out that this was a no-fault agreement. And can yep. you talk about what that means? Well, I think the, the Attorney General of Ohio said it pretty well when he said that you look at the number and the number uh, looks like an apology letter. Uh, you know, when you when you read it in that way, 
Uh, I think uh, I think it's very clear that uh, that money had been paid out that should not have been paid out, and, and Centene made good on this effort to get the money back to where it belonged. Um, I, I think if you ask Centene what had happened here, they would probably say that Centene grew very quickly, uh, uh, was engaging in very complex transactions, and they didn't exactly know that the overbilling was happening. Whether or not that is true to me doesn't matter. They're free to claim that out in public and to make their case to the public. That's okay. Uh, what matters to me is uh, because there was overpayments or overbilling that we made sure that that money got back to the taxpayers here in Mississippi, which is what has happened. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you talking with us today. Yeah, thanks, Kobe. We appreciate it. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Jackson Mayor Shokwe and Tarlamumba. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Yesterday, in the first part of his conversation with MPB, Jackson Mayor Shokwe and Tarlamumba laid out a broad vision for his second term in office. Today, focus turns to the capital city's most pressing issues, infrastructure, poverty, and crime. Speaking again with Rob Lane, Mayor Lumumba begins by addressing Jackson's ongoing struggles with its water system. Our water system is still in a state of crisis. And I have maintained that, you know, the systems we have are the systems we have until we have new systems, right? And that's a matter of resources, not so much a matter of political will. And so that's why we're having those conversations, both at a state and federal level, to obtain those resources, because the amount of decay, the amount of decline far exceeds the available resources the city of Jackson can contribute towards. You pointing to the issues of our water billing system is, you know, is, is appropriate. And so just as we believe that Jackson has not necessarily received the resources that we need on a commensurate level to, to maybe the sacrifice that we provide to the state as the capital city, we also acknowledge where our failures have been historically. The city of Jackson did not get it right when we invested in our water billing system through Siemens. We have since pursued litigation in that regard. We have reached settlement, and we're using those resources in order to outline and provide an entirely new system from top to bottom. We have to be able to provide reliability in the bills being read from the meters and, and getting to the billing department. No, all, all of the billing issues have not been resolved, and they won't be until we have the new system. It is not because someone at the billing department just doesn't like their job and doesn't want to get your bill out. Is because the meter literally does not communicate as it should to the repeaters and the repeaters to the billing department. And so as this particular meter has been failing in certain places all around the nation, we believe that we have to cut bait, install a new system that has reliability, and, and so that's what, we're, that's what we're, we're doing. Furthermore, not only do we need to be able to provide reliable bills to our customers, we have to be able to give them the runway to move past the, the very high bills that they have now. In most circumstances, not all, uh, in most circumstances we find residents who have exorbitantly high bills 
not so much because the consumption rate is inaccurate, but because the bill has been held so long and suddenly released on people. And I may be able to pay my bill each and every month, but when you hold it for three years and I'm estimating what I need to pay, or maybe, you know, I failed to pay anything at all, it makes it very difficult for me to pay it all at once. And so having the legislation at the state level, this is a part of our legislative fight and the battle that we've been waging. We were able to secure a means by which we could put that bad debt in a deferred account, giving the opportunity for the city to move forward and opportunity for residents to move forward. I'd rather 50% of something than 100% of nothing. And so that allows us to turn the page for everyone. You know, the old adage is, if I owe the bank $10,000, then I have a problem. If I owe the bank a million, then we have a problem. And that's the situation that the city has been in. You also touched on crime. I believe I wrote recently that Jackson is on pace for about 150 homicides a year this year, excuse me, which I think you would agree is a lot. You've spoken about the social determinants of crime, but addressing those are obviously a very long-term project. You were also unsuccessful in attempting to ban the open carry of firearms in the city. What's your plan to save lives right now in 2021? Well, let, let me say this. I have never given up on the issue of open carry being detrimental to our communities. That's one. But two, we have contributed not only to traditional ideology of you know how we help secure people through policing, But we've also supported measures which we believe ultimately get to the root causes. Uh, We've had five times as many recruiting classes as prior administrations. We've introduced new technology such as a real-time command center that has cameras that are able to assist our officers and give more coverage across the city, triangulate in areas where there there, there seems to be a frequency or a hot spot or a trouble area in which crime is taking place so that we can get an understanding of who some of the frequent contributors may be to that. We know that the systems have failed us in terms of, you know, an inability to house many offenders in our jail systems, right? We know that that the system is failing us in terms of being able to adjudicate matters from the moment of arrest to trial. And so all of that causes harm and, and delay in the system. And if we know that the systems that we have traditionally looked to are simply not enough to solve it, then no matter what your philosophy is, then you have to look at creative and expansive ways of dealing with the issue. And so that's why it's never been a, you know, an equation of one versus the other. I have always advocated for a comprehensive plan that not only looks at how we help put more people on the streets for when a crime takes place, and that's what the police are typically there for, but how do we engage and interrupt the cycle of violence that we see taking place? What we're seeing is an increase in domestic circumstances. We know that there's, you know, an increased mental health effect that is taking place since COVID. Jackson has seen a growth that I believe there is correlation between the state's decision to decrease mental health support and the increase in homicides and crime that we see specific to violent crimes. We're also looking to partner with organizations with entities like Jackson State to help with mental health support, with organizations that are working on the ground, like Strong Arms of Jackson, that is working towards violence interruption, with a number of community partners that have suggested that they want to be a part of this process and looking to engage youth through youth programming. And I think that we have to pursue all of those efforts simultaneously in order to see the reduction. 
Just a final question for you, and it's a question really about perception. Over the course of this interview, we have talked a lot about problems Jackson is facing. You've been on CNN, you've been in the national media a few times over the past few months talking about the problems Jackson is facing. What would you say to Mississippians who look at their state capital and see basically nothing but problems? Well, I think that there's always danger in a single narrative. We've had economic development to take place. You know, when you look down Capitol Street in Jackson, I see a street that I remember in my childhood when all the businesses left. And I now see every single space either occupied or construction taking place. I see a city which airport, you know, eclipsed uh, its all-time high in terms of passengers that come through there. In 2019, we've recovered our low-cost carrier to see more growth there. You know, we have more partners at the table that are willing to support. There will be challenges that remain, and Jackson isn't unique from any city in that regard, but we believe that we are poised with a city that is pregnant with possibilities, and it merely requires that we all nurture it, that we all have sincere effort in our aim to improve it. The state of Mississippi has had financial troubles or or woes over Uh, the last several years. But we don't have a narrative about that. We believe that as a state, we can grow and improve. And so we have to make certain that we give accountability to the challenges that are there, that we're able to speak to how we intend to solve those problems. But at the same time, we have to be able to identify and look at the many successes that are there as well. And sometimes we become so marred in the challenges that are there that we fail to appreciate and encourage ourselves on the things that we have to build on. Mayor Lumumba, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.